You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about generating alpha, finding inefficiency, finding edge, something that's at the heart and soul of every active manager, in my opinion. So joining me today is Chris Carsley, who is CIO and managing partner at Kirkland Capital Group. Chris, welcome to the show. Andy, thank you for having me. No, and uh, I, I'll, I'll talk your ear off about inefficiencies and edge. Where do you want to? Where do you want to dive in? Well, it's, it's a great topic, Chris, because you're basically the way I framed it. You're going to give us your whole secret sauce, right? By the end of the episode, we'll have the whole the whole recipe, the whole <laughs> secret sauce. You know, it'd be like uh, Colonel Sanders giving us the. There the, you go. You'll be able to make your own fried chicken. You'll be ready to go. Uh, well, let's start with your background, because I think when I hear of any asset manager who's generating alpha, a hundred times out of a hundred, there's always an interesting background. A lot of times it's in you know hedge funds or, or different little corners of the asset management world. So how did you get your start in finance? Well, it actually started off, um, I was about 13 years old and I pulled up the Wall Street Journal back when people actually had the physical Wall Street Journal. Um, and I opened up to the stock page. And I don't know if you remember those pages. I mean, it oh, was yeah. just a series of symbols that made no sense and a bunch of numbers. And I remember I was sitting there and of course my parents were not really big into investing. So I went to them and asked the question and they're like, well, I don't really know how to read that that well. Go talk to our broker. And uh, so I'll date myself again here. Went down to the Spit Marty office and I sat down and I said, how do you read all this? And he started talking about all these different things and started uh, walking me through what was possible. And um, I always wonder this in my path. If I hadn't made money on my first trade, would I be doing what I did now? But luckily, I did make an investment, uh, sold a mutual fund that my dad had. So, you know, you know, thousand dollars in or something like that, bought an individual name, made money and did the rest is history. That led me to wanting to do this all the time, because when you're 13 and you you make a couple hundred bucks and you didn't have to pull any weeds and you didn't have to mow any lawns. That's, that was something. Well, your I, I dad must've really, your dad must've really <laughs> trusted you, Chris, to trust you with uh, a trade or did he view it as yeah, a learning no, experience? He, he, he walked over with me. He's like, well, what are you yeah. thinking about doing and this? And um, I'll never forget the trade because you'll laugh. Um, my initials are CTC, Christopher Thomas Carsley. And it was a company called Contel that its symbol was CTC. It didn't have anything to do with my decision. It just kind of worked out. But the trade actually was Contel was bought by GE um, about four months after I bought the stock. Now, of course, that's pure luck. There's, I was not smart enough to try to gauge uh, an M&A transaction. Did your dad take you out for ice cream or something after that acquisition? Or No, he probably made me take take him out what are you talking about <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he's like you got money now um so uh yeah no and that was sort of my first trade uh, i was one of the weird kids went into college knew exactly what i wanted to do i was already waking up in the morning um i'm out on the west coast so you're up at 6 six thirty, you know trying to figure out what you're going to invest in and do a number of different things um and that's how uh, you know and i walked out of college um and i became a junior portfolio manager, started my career in traditional asset management. So I was running discretionary accounts for high net worth, small companies, things like that. So um, very long stock, long bond, not too exciting, you know, 
Um, but that led me into the dot-com era uh, where I was actually exposed to a number of different people in a lot of different trade groups. And I was on the Microsoft campus at a dot-com event, not being a huge techie at that time. Um, found somebody who was about as bored as I. And it turned out that he was a trader for the hedge fund that I went to go work for for eight years, which was Paloma Partners. So that was my introduction to what I kind of call behind the curtain. It was all of a sudden now there was this whole world outside of just going along stocks and bonds. There was a number of different ways to think about trading, how you're going to make money. And that was my sort of first introduction into the inefficiencies that are in the market. And, and Chris, uh, could I could I yeah. ask you, you know, sure. I'm always curious because I talk with a lot of asset managers and, you know, people who work at hedge funds or found hedge funds, I feel like, well, first of all, hedge funds are kind of this like big bad guy in the media, right? I'm not talking about that at all. That's yeah. not what I'm talking yeah. about at all. But I, I do feel like they have a little bit of like a different culture uh, of of very sharp minds who are who are almost like intellectual, like uh, obviously want to make money, but almost like a com com competition of ideas type culture or or maybe it you very, could describe it for us. What, what's the culture it, it, it very, like? Well, it? it's, I always tell people, you got to have the right personality to sit in the chair. You've got to want to realize, how do I create something from nothing sometimes? How do I um, go in and I know the basis of maybe a few different trades. You know, what we traded was event-driven trades that where we had our own securities finance desk. So we wouldn't go in and buy stocks in relation to the event. We would go in and structure longs and shorts and really obtain some of our long exposure just by borrowing the stock. Um, so that gives you some of the nature, but you are you're correct. It's um it's a little bit more of an aggressive uh culture. Um, you got to earn your seat. You're paid to make money. Um, obviously, within Paloma, there was multiple trade groups, and we were just one of them. Um, yeah, I mean, you got. <laughs> I guess you got to be smart, but it, I found it. You had to be able to. One of the key lessons right off the bat was accept failure and loss because mm. it's going to happen, and sometimes it happens so fast that you have to make a choice of do I just walk away from this trade, you know, cut bait and move on to something where I think I can, you know, recapture that loss or is it a, a savable trade? Um, and that was something that, you know, no, nobody teaches that. You don't go to school for that. There's not many jobs that will walk you through that mentality. That sounds like intestinal <laughs> fortitude to me or, you know, combination of having a thick skin and just kind of uh, being able to handle internal pressure, external pressure, pressure, right? Just pressure. I mean, and, and pressure came from, cause it's not like you got any sympathy. Like when you lost money, the rest of the guys on the trade desk were definitely making fun of you. I mean, so you had to kind of deal <laughs> with it. Like not only have I lost money, now I'm sweating, even yep. though the AC's on in the room. Um, you know, people are poking fun at you. Um, especially when you're the new guy. Um, you yeah. Are? You know, especially when you're from the West coast, working for an East coast firm. That was yeah, a lot, a lot of pressures. <laughs> A lot of pressures, um, you know, you know, so it's, um, it, it, and that was, it, it made you really sort of get, it made me ready. That mentality made me ready for the kind of the rest of my jobs and sort of the path that I chose. So after working in that environment and having to 
given opportunities. Um, so I ran the Canadian trade book and then I put a trade together that we were kind of doing a little bit, but we were sort of off lending this trade. So it's like we weren't running our own book on a particular Dutch trade. And I don't know, I sat down one day. Uh, it was late hours were you know, the market was closed. Everything was kind of done. Everything was balanced. Offset, I was good on my cash. And so I was like, you know what? Let's sit down and map out this trade. And I mapped out. And the next day, I called a bunch of people on the custodial desks. And I said, hey, you know, can I borrow this stock if I needed to? And they're like, yeah, we got tons of shares. And so that kind of all of a sudden, I'm taking an idea that we weren't really involved in firsthand. And then it was like, wait, we can do this trade ourselves. We can put the whole thing together. And that mentality is what really comes in the hedge fund world is you're you you're doing a trade, but you're willing to take it and think outside of the box and come up with something new. So that, that sounds, I mean, if I'm using a technical term, I might call that entrepreneurship, but I mean, I call it, <laughs> yeah, it's, entrepreneurship. It it's really group. entrepreneurial mindset, basically. It is an entrepreneurial mindset mindset of like, hey, I, how am I going to take you know, this amorphous form in front of me and turn it into something. Mm. How do I, how do I, how do I move forward? And so that was definitely the life of a trader. Um, you know, what are you going to do next? No one was there to tell you what you had to do. You, you just had to sit down and you had to make things happen and you had to develop relationships. Um, so, so what is most of your time? Like, so working for a hedge fund, like, you know, it's not like executing trades, isn't that time intensive, right? So is it mostly reading and, and talking and researching like what is the day, -day uh, yeah work? reading researching modeling mm -hmm. um putting together the network that's actually going to be able to help you make a trade you know come to fruition that's one of the things that um you know there's certain trades like uh, you know i was just talking to someone last night about low latency and you know option based model. i mean yeah you can sit in front of a computer and maybe do that all by yourself but in the event driven trades that we were doing we're often cross-border involving in borrowing stock in one country and moving it to another country and then transacting on a certain corporate event and then collapsing that trade. That was what we did over and over and over again across multiple countries, um, wherever we could find it. And I won't dive into all the trades. There are, there are fascinating and most people have never heard of them before, but there's some really interesting stuff, but it's also incredibly simplistic when someone tells you how it works. Mm. Um, but you and I would never see it unless someone said, Hey, there's the trade. That's, that's what happens. Um, but yeah, it's, um, but that, that entrepreneurship led me to, I mean, I eventually left the hedge fund land. Um, we, we were having, it was, you know, getting close to 08 and things were having lots of different problems. And so I actually came back permanently to the West coast and worked for a fund of fund. Um, and they're, they, you know, multi-billion dollar fund to fund that was investing in a number of different funds all around either long, short equity or esoteric sort of special sits trades within the hedge fund world. Um, so it could really be almost anything. So now you had to really open your mind and sit down and take your knowledge of how trades worked and sit in front of very smart people and almost do a little bit of reverse engineering to understand what are they trading? And this is where it really hit. You were capturing inefficiencies and making that ar you know that arbitrage, or uh, as some people would call alpha, uh, at the hedge fund world. Now you were assessing how other people were doing it, mm. and so you were sitting with hundreds of uh, you know managers of funds doing a variety of different trades, whether it was vol, event driven, uh, muni arb, uh, you know credit, 
you know, multi-tiered junior versus senior credit trades. I mean, and, and Chris, um, this to, to be clear, this isn't like an index fund of other funds, right? Like you're actually picking winners and losers. You're kind of, you're, you're kind of evaluating the, the managers, the fund managers correct. themselves. And you're before the fact you're trying to sort of rank them probably and saying, I'm going to invest with these top 5% or top 10%. Yeah, or do they make it into the fund? What's the allocation? Uh, and then you got, you know, cross correlations and impact to the existing managers, you know, Hey, if I add this guy, what does that mean? So you're really running through the investment through the diligence. Hey, how is this guy creating alpha? Can he do it repeatedly? Um, and then you're also going into the business, uh, you know, efficiencies and the operational due diligence. You're going through everything to ensure, Hey, we understand the risks. If I'm going to deploy 25, 50 million to this guy. Do I understand what he's doing, how he does it, and he's eating going to stick to his P's and Q's? And so I did that for a number of years, um, and that continued that sort of – and it was it was a great shot because you had a core of what you were aiming for, but like one of my tasks was to find people who could short and create alpha consistently. That is extremely hard to do. I mean, I spent years talking to a lot of managers, and I did find four or five. But we're talking about hundreds of people that I met. You really, when you run through the attributions and the math of their longs and shorts of whatever structure they're putting together, most people you found like they should just stop shorting. You're not actually any good at it. It's lowering the ball of your portfolio, but it's actually not creating any alpha. Yeah. And then even I imagine a portion of the winners over a three, five year period or whatever, a portion of them are winning because of luck or because, you know, (laughs) there's always going to. Or it's beta disguised i mean you have a lot of that going on where you know the market just rallies and you have someone produce an outsized return but when you really run through the attribution and run a regression analysis against a series of best fit you know indices you know really complex benchmarking you realize you know okay the guy guy just was riding the wave got it i mean and you know and then when you do that with shorts you find out you know and a lot of people don't like to hear that so we wouldn't tell people if we've we didn't like their short book. It's not like we threw it in their face. We just decided, oh, we're, we're just not going to invest at this time. So, Chris, um, the, the, yeah. I, I got to stop you here. This is an sure. interesting kind of hearing about your career path. You know, the theme of what we're talking about today, inefficiency, edge, alpha generation. And I think you said the magic word, something like uh, uh, repeatable or consistent alpha generation. Yeah. And I, to me, your career trajectory, it's already interesting because you were the manager, you were finding, generating the alpha or, or finding that inefficiency, finding that edge initially. Then now you've switched to a fund of funds where you, now your skill set is in analyzing that in other people and, yes. you know, evaluating hundreds of other managers to see which ones actually can do this consistently and repeatedly. And like you said, it's, it's rare but then at some point you've decided to to be a manager again, right? And to do this yourself. And I, but I think that's really yeah. interesting to me that you kind of started at that one end of the spectrum as a manager, but then you sat in another seat where you're kind of uh, you're still a participant, but you're also observing and evaluating others. You know, it's kind of like you were a player and then you're a coach yep. and now you're a player again, but you can see things through the coach's eyes. Like that's kind of what I'm getting at. I think that's a really, that's, a, that's an excellent way to put it. I'm going to steal that, you know, I'm going to oh. steal the whole player <laughs> coach. I, I like, I like, I like that. <laughs> so what, so no, what did you, exactly. what did you really learn then with, you know, as the coach, as, as, as the, you know, person evaluating other managers, 
Were there any real lessons that you took home from that? There's tons of lessons. I'm trying to think which ones to really talk about in our show. Well, which in our, in which ones, period. I guess, informed the next phase in your career? Because obviously now you're at Kirkland Capital Group and you're finding that edge and finding that inefficiency. What were the kind of the key aspects that you've now taken with you into your current role with your current strategy in, in your current fund? I really learned um, one of the things that we went after at the fund to fund was we tried to focus on some of your niche strategies. People that were in fragmented spaces, um, they couldn't always run billions of dollars, but you could, they could run, you know, 200, 300 million, 400 million, but they, those small niche players with the right team and the right background. And, you know, they, maybe it was a system that they had or a network or a previous, uh, you know, fund that they worked with and they sort of spun out. We, I mean, there was a number of people I met that worked for very, very smart people that were even, you know, Paloma funds, that Paloma fund went from. 200 million to 4 billion. Well, when all of a sudden you're running 4 billion, they can't do those small trades. They're de minimis to their portfolio now. But all of a sudden you have someone with that hedge fund spin out and they're doing a smaller fund. And now they're doing those small niche trades. That's what, you know, after just looking at hundreds and hundreds of people, one, there's inefficiencies out there. The market is inefficient and there's some smart people who can capture things. And so active management. If you're looking for in the right areas, it does exist. It has value and they're worth their fees. Um, that was one thing you, you definitely learned when you looked at net of fees and you're like, hey, these guys, yeah, maybe they're making two and 20, but they're still, you know, they're still crushing it. Um, and so, yeah, but so right away, you're talking about more niche areas of the market. Yep. And that makes sense to me because once something it's, it's kind of like, you know, in the real estate market, for instance, thinking about like these self-storage facilities that are in like rural areas or whatever, it's like, it's too small. It's too small of an opportunity to be on the radar of some big public REIT or just right. some larger player. It's almost like not worth their time. It's not worth their opportunity costs, or they just logistically can't, they're just too big. And so a lot of times in capitalism, some of these opportunities, it's not, it's not that the opportunity is too big or too small or whatever in the abstract. It's more like, Hey, this is big enough for me, but I know it's too small for Amazon to care, right? It's like my golden yeah. rule for entrepreneurs is like never compete with Amazon. Once you're competing with Amazon, you're in for a bad day. So it's it's kind of sounds like the same concept here is like we it, don't want to compete with Amazon, whoever the equivalent is and the hedge fund. Exactly. I, I say a lot, you know, you'll run into a lot of scenarios where it's David and Goliath. And I understand the story that David won, but in the real world, David loses a lot. <laughs> he gets squashed by Goliath. And um, to your point, I mean, storage is not my direct trade, but you hit it right on the head where you can find these people in smaller niche places that the big money might try to aggregate at some point. So maybe you got somebody who tries to aggregate up uh, a bunch of these small pieces and then that sells as a portfolio to a bigger player. But there's a lot of value creation in that trade, you know, going small, getting in there, working with very wide spreads. And that's what we used to just say where it's like, you know, how wide is the spread? You know, how big is this opportunity or inefficiency this person is taking advantage of? And is it sustainable? Is it cyclical? And can this guy or group of people, do they have the edge to make it repeatable? Or is this just like a, a one hit wonder song? You know, they got it right for six months and now they're going to, you know, 
fall flat on their face. And that all that almost sounds to me like bankroll management or something like uh, you know, playing blackjack, like at, you know, I might be 5248 uh, on an individual hand or whatever. But the, <laughs> the point is, can I do it consistently correct o- over time? Because you know, making making money within a six month period, that that's fine, but you can't really build a fund around that or or, or most correct. funds can't I mean, be and if you're that. in for like maybe a one off trade, it's only six months. I mean, that would be a short trade. I don't know what that would be specifically, but um, that's great. And now you understand as an investor what you got into. But if you're investing in a fund, mm-hmm. you want to understand maybe their trades are a month, maybe their trades are six months, but how are they laddering these over time and what are they creating uh, and how are they creating? Because I mean, I'm sorry, one of the things that after working with a number of high net worths, the last thing they wanted to do was be in a lot of short-term trades and then find out how they're going to deploy their money next. I mean, especially if you got a lot of it. It's like, well, I got a hundred million to deploy, you know, great. I don't want to go into a trade that's over in a month. And now I got to find out what I do with my money the next month. I mean, it just, that's way too much work. So there's a portion of the portfolio and I hear it from a lot of, uh, you know, large investors. I want to be in things that I understand. I want that exposure. I want that risk in my portfolio. And I want to basically have that for an extended period of time because I understand how it relates with my other assets. I mean, you got a lot of things moving around. That's a lot of work. No, totally. And I mean, that's a theme that I hear from family offices a lot. And, uh, you know, a lot of smart people running family offices, but at the same time, I feel like, and I I mean, this as a compliment, it probably doesn't sound like one, (laughs) but they, it's, they like want to dumb things down. Like, why do they like multifamily? Because they understand it and you can do a direct deal and you can own a multifamily asset for 10, 15 years. You understand how it relates to the rest of the portfolio. You understand the amount of leverage being used. You just you understand it, right? I, I totally believe in that. I have sat in front of a few managers where they tell me what they're doing. And I'll, I'll look at them and go, I'm not a dumb person, but I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> so can you dumb it down for like, I, I talk to a first grader and I'm the yeah. first grader and they try to tell me again. And I'm like, yeah, I'm still not getting it. And, and usually that's a pretty good sign. It's too complex because there's a rule we had, you know, across our entire analyst team, you know, and we were all very smart. If you couldn't understand what was going on, that means that that's just how many more multiple ways it could break that you're not going to see. Yeah. And that's what you always got to think is like, well, do I really understand the risks that are being taken? And does the manager understand the risks they're taking? And can they express those risks to me and that they understand it? And they're doing whatever they can. Um, and if that trend, that information cannot be made transparent, you know, as an investor, you should probably walk away. We did. We walked away from a lot of stuff where I'm like, I'm, I'm sure you're super smart and you got a great trade, but I just don't understand it. Yeah, if you can't, I, and it, I, I would say if you can't communicate the thing, then I might question how deep is your understanding of the thing. And and I <laughs> understand, you know, that there's all there's examples of amazing athletes who are great at something and then they're terrible coaches because they can't explain what they're doing but it's like hey this is my money right like if i can't understand it then it's just walk away because there's there's not a million but there's a lot of managers out there there's a lot of offerings to invest my money so why why mess with something i don't understand well could you bridge us then I mean, this is all fascinating. Like, by the way, I love these kind of like rules of thumb. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I really take away that sticks with me. So I, thank you for sharing that rule of thumb. But bridge us then to your current, uh, you sure. know, Kirkland Capital Group and and how are you finding inefficiency and edge and, and what's your process now? Because obviously you've been 
you started doing that at the beginning of your career, then you're obviously soaking it up and evaluating others. And to me, that's like, that's like your 10,000 hours where you're like truly getting to a deep understanding of alpha. How are you, how are you choosing to apply that now? Uh, yeah. Um, no, let's uh, I'll back up and give you a little bit of the history in 2019. Um, my, my partner, uh, and, and longtime friend, we actually met in martial arts of all places. And then we never really worked together. He was always in technology and real estate. And I was purely in investment management. Well, what martial me. art? We got to start there. <laughs> um, I actually trained in Hungar, Kung Fu, okay. uh, Aikido. I did jujitsu, uh, did a little bit of Shotokan karate. And now I train in Sunjo, which is um, a derivative of uh, Jeet Kune Do and Wing Chun. So. Okay, so grappling, striking. I mean, you, honestly, you sound like a hedge fund guy. A little bit of, hit, hits you from every angle. Okay, so you met your partner. I, no, and, I'm adaptive. I adapt yes. to whatever I need, depending <laughs> on what you're going to do. Yeah, I love, I, 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 I love it. I'm malleable. Um, so, no, yeah, we met in martial arts. Um, but in 2019, he calls up and he goes, you know, I've created a number of these different broker networks. Uh, broker loan brokers who you know work in single family residential work in commercial he goes this particular set is their loan brokers that work in very small balance which we had to say in real estate the word small can still mean a very large number so we sort of coined micro balance um so we you know most of the loans that we're looking at most loans that he was being shown 200 250 to you know 1.2 1.3 million not very big loans, not like what you'd normally see in some of the big shops where they're writing 25, 50, hundreds. And so these large. right away, I'm hearing stuff that's below the radar of, yep. of larger companies. Okay. And so Brock goes, Hey, you know, they're just, the phone's going off the hook. No one can find any money. Mm -hmm. um, they're complaining about, um, you know, traditional, some of the hard money loan to own stuff. Um, they don't want to work with those guys. They got a, there's a lot of mom and pop, you know, lenders for local areas. Um, and you know, and, and some of these guys do great job, but these loan brokers are saying, you know, we're, we're trying to find somebody who can do it a little bit more. I, you know, what I sort of call institutional. Sure. Um, and so I said, well, Brock, okay, what do you want to do with this information? I said, it sounds like you got something here. He goes, do you think we can create a fund? And so I went in, started doing my research. I called a bunch of other lending funds of all types, which I knew a bunch. And I said, okay, well, send me your PPMs. I just want to read through and familiarize myself with the world. And then what I realized, and obviously my network is the RIAs and the investment managers, they're all, you know, clamoring. This is starting back in like 2015. People are already like, hey, how am I going to get yield? How am I going to effectively create fixed income without going on out on the risk curve? Because let's just be honest, a lot of guys were 100% equity and they were doing equity harvesting to create income as, you know, and that was a great trade. And, and who this, can blame them in an era of financial I, repression where bonds are yielding less than the inflation rate, right? It, I mean. and, and, and the stock market's just going up. I mean, I'm not blaming anybody. Great trade. But all these guys were smart enough to realize that trade's coming to an end. We're just not sure when. Mm -hmm. So they were talking about it in 2015. And of course, we all know that it, the final shoe dropped in 22. But um, they were trying to find it. I said, you know, there's a lot of people looking for this trade. Um let's put this together, figure out how we want to do it. You already have the sourcing. We're going to have to advance sourcing, obviously, as we're going to grow. Um, and he has the underwriting background. I said, let's, and I started forming, you know, how I want to run this fund. It's very different from building hedge funds and venture funds, which I've done. Um, 
all of a sudden you realize, wait, wait a second. I, I can structure this a couple different ways. Um, I can do the classic fee and incentive, or I can do fee and there's origination points. There's all kinds of different ways, you know, to, to skin this rabbit. And, and, and so we had to figure out, well, what do I want to do next? So if I'm going to build something, let's actually build something that's going to have long legs to it. So I don't have to be changing uh, my PPMs and my documents. So we chose the route of, hey, we're going to charge management fee and the origination points will flow to the manager. So the only fee the, uh, the investors see are management fees and fund expenses. So it's very, very linear, very easy for them to understand, super transparent. So that's and is the it open? Is it open-ended also? Yeah. So evergreen style, ongoing. Yeah. Um, but so we put that together. And as you said, I mean, we walked into a space where small, I tried to go get data on this micro balance space. All your big data shops um, were like, well, I really, I really can't get you data on the space you're looking at. I have to get it on this much bigger space. And you just have to kind of take a guess at how big you think it is. And I was like, okay, that's troubling. I can't get the data I want. But in a roundabout way, that's a good thing. Okay, that means there's yeah. not a lot of eyes on this space. There's no one really using a large database to go after this space. And I was like, okay, that that's a good thing in a roundabout way. Um, obviously, the brokers were looking for a change. Uh, borrowers were looking for a change. And then when I went out and talked to a bunch of people, there were people who lent in this space, but it wasn't a core of their business. It wasn't what they did every day. They had big shops. They lend big money. And, you know, hey, Andy, I just did a $50 million loan for you. You come in and like, hey, Chris, can you lend me a million on this little side project I'm doing with, you know, with a buddy of mine? Sure. Why not? That was kind of their attitude towards the space. Yeah. Was like, and, yeah and then these favors, big shops, they, they, they probably have, you know, fixed costs or just overhead to even yeah. evaluate any deal where Correct. they, I, I can't have 50 K invested in, in, in due diligence in a, a underwriting a $1 million loan. Right. It's just not worth it. They're too big. It's tremendous to their portfolio. You are correct. They have, they don't have the operational systems and the cost efficiencies to warrant even really caring about it. Um, it doesn't move the needle and that, and that's fine. And a lot of those, a lot of those guys are my friends. I mean, I know guys <laughs> that are, that they're too big and then they're like, Oh, you're going to go into that space. And I'm like, but I also heard there's a life cycle in private debt with real estate. People, start their fund. They operate in this tiny space. And I don't know if it's value to the investor they're hunting or ego of, I want to run a big fund. Um, and they get big and then they go out of this space. They no longer do it. So we heard that from a lot of brokers as well. All of a sudden I had a fund who was, you know, or a group that had, you know, money ready for me to borrow and now they're gone. And so these brokers and these borrowers are constantly trying to find new people. And I said, well, I'm going to put my hedge fund hat on. When you find a fragmented space that's got a lot of inefficiencies in it, I mean, obviously, we all understand the inefficiency of the private debt world. Regulations out of Dodd-Frank in 2009-10, I mean, that, that's what created private debt and launched it to, a, to the level we see today. Yeah, I mean, was, is, this, know, is this broadly, broadly speaking, Chris, is this like a space that regional banks, local banks used to fill and then now they you they, go back they, in time perhaps but yeah. as their you know lending guidelines were tightened and tightened and tightened and still continue to be tightened because yeah. they, they, 
yeah, their cohorts keep on blowing up, which we all <laughs> recently <laughs> realized. Yep. Um, and that's actually what's going on right now is another tightening. We're seeing tons of loans in this little tiny space that I don't think we'd normally see. But it actually started before the announcements of Silicon Valley Bank um, and Signature. We were seeing loans in November and December that I was like, where, where, where's this demand coming from? Have we done more marketing that I'm not aware of? And Brock's like, no, this and, is just And Chris, from, from what I understand, it's like for every dollar of capital you have that you can loan out to someone who's qualified, there's probably like three people, three three companies or what. There's just so much demand for credit, even from companies Correct. that are, are credit worthy. Do, do you find that there's like a supply and demand mismatch? There is a total supply and demand mismatch. That is the that is at the heart of what's going on in this micro balance space mm -hmm. is there's a lot of demand um, in these tertiary and secondary markets um, for the ability to borrow to purchase, borrow to refinance. Um, and there's just not enough money flowing there. Well, is that, I mean, that in and of itself, but I don't know if I'd call that alpha. Maybe it is a form of alpha, but that already gives you pricing power, right? That already gives you, I'm imagining a couple hundred basis points of like, <laughs> exactly. well, because what happens when there's a supply and demand imbalance, right? Prices will adjust. Correct. You have pricing power and you also have contract power. Um, we have enough demand that we write our contract and it's written our way. And if you don't like it, I mean, we're pretty fair because we're, we're not a loan to own shop we don't have a lot of tripwires in our loan documents so we usually don't have a lot of pushback but some people will you know hey i'd rather do like a two or three well we do 12 months and, and you know it is what it is you know take it or leave it yeah i don't really need to negotiate with you and they usually take it because they realize well okay i i'm the one that can't find the money these people have it for me i kind of have to do what they're doing um, so, so then, yes, Chris, you, how do you how do you scale that though? Aren't you against the same problem that every other every other shop that you know has a private credit fund that you know you're filling this filling this huge need, which by the way is is serving a good for society, like helping provide capital yeah. to these kind of small mid sized businesses that need it. So, great product, but then actually, how do you scale it, or is is uh, the plan just to stay small? Uh, well, I mean. Define small. I mean, and I thought you, you hit you hit on the there's two sides to every coin. Yeah. If you find something there's inefficiency and there is an an ability to create an excess return. One of the things that I've found through looking at hundreds and hundreds of it doesn't matter, hedge funds, venture, whatever, if you have something really niche, the other side of the coin that is your limiter is your capacity. Hmm. You're not gonna wake up and go run a $2 billion, $3 billion shop and stay in this niche. You just can't do it. Um, so one of the things that we sort of targeted is, hey, we'll go see if we can run this fund at 80 to 100 million. And we, what we're always assessing is available money to deploy in our fund to what we call the wave that's in our face. You know, if, for all you surfers out there, I mean, it's like, I want a wave that's in front of me. I want, I want, to understand that, okay, it's going to crash on me and that's okay. And what that means to us is there are loans that I probably would do if I had the money, but I'm not going to be able to do it because I don't have the money. So the demand is greater than my supply. And what we're trying to gauge as we grow, um, can we keep that wave over our head? Now, when that wave starts to kind of meet that equilibrium, well, then you probably have some indicator 
a way to, okay, we might be close to our capacity or is this something that's in the market that created a, a, a slow in demand uh, for, for lending? Um, you'll have to assess that at that time. But that's something that we're watching very closely because when I did my assessments of the market, I kind of came up with 80 to 100. But I have met a lot of people that have told me, no, no, I know guys that can do 200, 300, 400 million in that space. And I'm like, okay, I'll see when I get there. Yeah. So that's a sort of a live discussion. But I, I see. So we, we kind of, I think we, we both agree, I, you know, not that I even know that much about it, but this probably doesn't scale to a billion or more because no. at that point you're just, you're different, you're a different organization to manage that amount of capital. So you Completely. kind of are, you're kind of choosing deliberately. We want to be smaller. We want to be more nimble. We want to be more scrappy. If I can use the term, yeah. I, I mean, it is a compliment to well, be. And I want to stay, I want to stay in that little inefficient space. Yeah. I mean, there's totally. one thing is, is where I had somebody asking me about CMBS and the impact and how I thought that affected me. I'm like, okay, you have to understand there's a whole like giant skyscraper that is private debt. Those guys are on the top floor. I'm, I'm, I'm in the basement. I mean, there's so many big things and a lot of the news you read, there may be some kind of beta impact. There may be some kind of trickle down uh, and we keep our eye on that. But you'd be amazed. Some of the big guy problems don't really trickle down to the guys in the tertiary markets. You know, one of the things that people were talking about is like, wow, you know, it's a big deal when you've got this cap rate move from four to six. I totally agree. But I don't think I've written a loan to anybody who was at a cap rate of four ever. I think when we were assessing valuations and what they were putting together, I think one of the lowest cap rates we saw was a nine. Most of these guys are double digits. Yeah. You know, they've, they've got a big spread in their, Hey, I'm going to purchase this mixed use property and you run through their math and you, we run our own models on it. And we're like, Hey, this guy could drive a, you know, a freighter through this spread. So me charging them, you know, in today's world, 13 and a half or something like that, it doesn't affect them. Yeah. So you, what, like what you're number, talking, but, what, what you're I mean, talking about, I think is kind of like, uh, something going from mid high risk to high risk or low high risk to mid high risk or however we want to call it. Yeah. That's a lot different than something going from low risk to medium risk or low risk to high right. risk, or, you know, you use whatever verbiage you want, but you already kind of knew, like when you're looking at double digits, interest rates, we're already thinking 24 seven about how things go wrong. Right. Like just like the nature totally. of the underwriting in that space. So it's, it's like, what changed? This is the world we live in versus yeah. when you're underwriting it at a four cap, you have a totally different set of assumptions. Correct. I mean, we're, we're recognizing, I mean, the one thing that we're really after is, are we getting you enough money to complete your project that you say you're going to complete? One, do, you, do we believe you can get stabilized in 12 months? Mm -hmm. um, now, which is interesting is we've got a lot of loans that have stabilized recently. But the banks are not jumping up to write loans right now. And yeah. so this year has been a little different where, hey, I need an extension or can I refinance within your own shop? Because I'm going to need another bridge loan. Because I, I mean, I was working with, unfortunately, a lot of borrowers, they could kind of hand their hat on one bank. And I'm like, okay, you should probably get more than one bank because you're never sure. I mean, and you need to play them off each other. And one guy might be, you know, favorable when another one's not um but we've had a few borrowers that you know they've done nine different properties with one bank 
But all of a sudden, the world's changed. They pulled the rug a little bit. And now they're looking at like, crap, I, I, I can't get conventional financing, mm-hmm. you know, because the bank changed the rules in the last month. Even though maybe their DSCR rate's perfectly fine. So, I mean, from our standpoint, we're actually loving it because we're, we're putting loans out at risk reward levels that we've never seen before. Because and you're, sure- because it's, it's, it's like, you're the only guy showing up on the football field, right? It's like, Hey, it's like free, Hey, free, free Super Bowl ring. You just got to show up on this football field at it's noon just, and no one else is showing no up. Shows so, up. So when they hand the yeah. ball to you, you just run down the field, score a touchdown. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I, I mean, you know, I love Chris. I just love that. It's just, it's so refreshingly honest. I mean, you're a super sharp guy. I can tell just from our conversation and from your career, you're a super sharp guy, but your game plan, you know, it's not predicated on on some, like you said, some idea that I can't even understand because it's so esoteric or complicated or whatever. You're playing in a space where banks aren't playing that's Correct. too small for some of these larger institutional players. It's fairly simple. When you operate in that space, there's so much demand for your product. You have extreme pricing power. It doesn't mean you're taking advantage of people, but nope. as you said, when you issue someone a term sheet or, or whatever it's called, and it, you know, here's the contract, take it or leave it. You know, not to be a jerk, but if you don't want this loan, there's three guys standing behind you who do want it. So, and and you you hit it right on the nose. I mean, it's like we even have problems where we have to be very upfront with borrowers. Like, hey, you need to get your paperwork and really be serious about this because we have multiple people coming up, and it has yeah. happened where a guy came in later who wanted money. Yeah, you came in first, but we don't run chronologically. If this guy's on it and he gets, and then all of a sudden he uses the money that would have been gotten for your loan, because we don't have endless money. I mean, we're relatively small. You know, we had to boot, we launched in January of 2020. So that was really fun. Um, you know, Brock not coming from the hedge fund world or any kind of fun world. We had, uh, you know, some great conversations of like, well, hold on to your britches and pull up your suspenders because <laughs> um, this is going to get really interesting. Um, you know, we're launching at a left tail event. Um, yeah. But, we had, I truly believe we had a product that people desired and it, it turned out right. So we bootstrapped I, I, it. I mean, we put our own money in and we just started writing debt. And our first debt was April of 2020. I mean, we were kind of dealing with anchors and investors not coming in in March, you know, totally expected phone calls. Um, one guy calls and he says, you know, I said, oh, you're not coming in. He goes, how do you know that? And I go, no one calls in the middle of a left tail event with good news. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, we, we managed to do that, but I mean, you, you had the right product, you're in a little niche space yep. um, and you, and you just have the demand, um, you know, and then that's, and a lot of that demand and a lot of that uh, building that network of sourcing. I mean, this is Brock's fourth time of doing, it. I mean, he's done this before and I mean, he makes it look easy, but I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot of work because we really, we want to align everybody. Obviously, we want to be super transparent. We want to align with our investors, but we want to align all the way down to the chain to the borrower. I'm not trying to take your property. I mean, yeah, you screw up. I mean, I mean, unfortunately, I got to protect my investors. So I'm, I'm going to have to foreclose on you. Um, but we will do a lot to help you out. Um, um, and then we're even aligned with you know the brokers. You know, it's you know Brock was telling me stories about like, hey, brokers sometimes don't get paid. So we embed that entire process into one transaction so that everybody who did the work, everyone who got the trade done gets paid full stop. And so it's, you know, 
trying to maintain that alignment all the way from the borrower through the broker to us, to the investor. I mean, it's a lot of work, but I don't know. I think it pays dividends oftentimes. Totally. It's long-term thinking, long-term philosophy. I a hundred percent agree. And we're, we're almost out of time, Chris, but I wanted to ask, so this is the Kirkland income fund. I wanted to ask, you know, who are your typical investors? What's the investment minimum? Um, investment minimums, a uh, hundred thousand, um, typical investors, uh, we, we're a 506c exemption, so everyone has to be accredited, but that encompasses a, a lot of, you know, high net worth, your ultra high net worth, um, small family offices, um, some multifamily offices that we're talking to. And I think after three years of business and the size we're at, I mean, we've had one RIA come in and we're talking to multiple more. So as we continue to match the, you know, the say and the do, and the numbers are coming in, um, and there's obviously people are recognizing the opportunity set within this little niche. Um, yeah, they also love the idea that we're putting up some amazing numbers and we're not using any leverage yet. Um, so it's those are our base investors and it's kind of shifting to some bigger investors a little bit more on the institutional side but you know we're ready for that i mean we already put ourselves on schwab's platform fidelity's platform td ameritrade so it's like you know wherever you need us to be i mean operationally just because of my background i've kind of built this little tiny institutional sort of class fund you know we have all the bells and whistles we just don't need to use them all the time (laughs) No, I, I, I love that. And, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that, you know, you're having success both with individual high net worth investors, family offices, now all the way up in institutions, because I say my quote, income never goes out of style. Right. And I think in today's environment with some of the eye popping yields and private credit that are still very, you know, very well underwritten that still have, uh, you know, very strong collateral, you know, margin of safety. It's just a very attractive product right now. I have to say there's a huge uh, interest in it, a huge appetite for it from our audience. I mean, yep. I talk with a lot of listeners, viewers, folks that attend our events. There's just a huge appetite for this sort yeah, of and there's And there's now. lots of different forms. I mean, obviously we're doing the private credit with, you know, backed by real estate, but you know, there's a lot of people looking for income and there's a lot of ways to, you know, obtain it. And it just depends on what your risk appetite is. Um, you know, I know some people in venture debt that, they're looking at some open field to play with because you know the king fell off the the throne, and yeah. so now people are like, "Hey, how do I how do I get in there as a private lender, and who do I talk to that I never would have been able to talk to because you know you always had the big venture related banks in the way." So yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of opportunity out there, and I you know I wish all those guys good luck. It's not what I do, but I know that they've they've definitely got some opportunity. Totally. And, you know, I nothing against banks, but I love entrepreneurs stepping in to fill a void, really just entrepreneurs being entrepreneurial and helping other entrepreneurs. Um, to me that, you know, it's one of the best parts about our country and, you know, seeing even times like this, we're living in interesting times, but seeing how private credit is, is kind of coming in to fill in the gap with 506C funds and other sorts of products. To me, it's really cool. It serves a larger purpose in our society, helps our economy, helps everyday people. So I love it. And that being said, Chris, where can our audience of family offices and high net worth investors go to learn more about Kirkland Capital Group? Uh, certainly, you can go to our website, which is just you know www.kirklandcapitalgroup.com. Um, that'll get you introduced to all all that. You can um, obviously find me on LinkedIn. I know Carsley doesn't sound like a terribly rare name, but it is. Um, so if you type in Carsley, uh, you'll definitely see 
my picture with all my, you know, CFA, CEI and everything else, reach out to me. Let me know how you heard and everything else. Cause I do get pinged a lot. Um, uh, so I, you know, just let me know, Hey, I, you know, I was listening to Andy's podcast and, you know, love to connect, uh, love to talk to you about whatever you want to talk about. Absolutely. And I'll be sure to link those in our show notes as well. Chris, thanks again for joining the show today and sharing your insights. No, thank you, Andy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.